Open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 13. Last week I talked about how we're going to cover this whole chapter today. I know that's incredibly ambitious. Um, if you're familiar with Mark 13, it, uh, it, it's, it's a difficult chapter, not just in Mark, but in all of the New Testament, maybe all of, all of Scripture, uh, to, to really grasp and understand. Um, it's known as the Olivet Discourse. It, it coincides with Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Luke chapter 21 in the other uh, those two Gospels, and it's the longest continuous section of Jesus' teaching recorded in the book of Mark. It's the conclusion of a longer section uh, in Mark's Gospel that started back in chapter 11, if you remember, where Jesus pronounces judgment on the Jewish leaders, uh, and, and then today we're going to see that judgment magnified um, as he pronounces the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and then points ultimately to the day of judgment to come for all mankind. Now, there are many views on the end times. Some of them are super crazy and weird, okay? Some of them are biblical attempts at interpreting what Scripture says and, and by faithful people who hold to God's word as the final authority, and yet even those differ from one another. And so um, it seems like it seems like 2020 has really sort of piqued this interest in, in end times things, right? With the craziness of all that's going on. You look at it and you go, whoa, maybe Jesus is coming back. And if you, it's probably best to stay off of Facebook right now and maybe ever. Um, but, but again, I mean, there's things, people are sharing stuff and posting things and pointing to all this stuff and... Um, we're going to see, yeah, it's true. Jesus is coming back. But, but there's, there's some nuances here that we really need to, to dig into this morning. And so um, it's a good thing for us to think about eschatology, the end times, the study of the final things, right? We don't want to ignore it because it's confusing. We don't want to, um, to, to push it aside because it's hard. It's important for us to have an understanding, uh, a foundation of what is coming, because that fuels how we behave and how we operate now as followers of Jesus. Um, Jesus' main focus in this chapter is not explaining the end to the disciples. Instead, it's to exhort them to be ready for what's coming. And so we're not going to get through this chapter and solve the debate on whether or not the rapture is going to happen or whether the millennial reign of Christ is literal or figurative. This passage doesn't talk about those things. Instead, as Jesus' disciples living today in 2020, we're going to receive the same exhortation that he gives to the disciples in the first century. What is that? Watch. Be alert. Watch out. Be on your guard. This chapter is ultimately a call to faithful discipleship in the present as we wait for Christ's return in the future, no matter how far ahead that future is. And so I want to pray um, because there's, there's just no way that we're going to understand anything in here without the help of the Holy Spirit. And that's really true every week anyway. So let's just acknowledge that in prayer together and, and dig in. Jesus, we thank you for, for sending your spirit to lead us into all truth, to convict our hearts, to comfort us 
in the grace of, of Christ and, and your presence with us to give us sure and steadfast hope for the future. And so we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would take your word, that you would make it alive in our hearts, that it would stir up in us a greater longing for Christ's return, that it would uh, embolden us to a greater and more steadfast uh, faith and obedience in the here and now. And we pray that in the midst of it all, you would be, uh, that, that, that Christ would be glorified through it. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I, I clearly don't need to convince anyone here that 2020 is super weird and crazy and that um, we're all looking forward to it being over. Um, but, but maybe we also need to remember that 2021 is coming and we have no idea what that holds, right? And in the middle, in, in the midst of that, um, I remember like when, when, when the, the COVID first started, everybody's just kind of glued to the TV, right? Or, or listening to the, to the radio or the news and, and really just like focus on all these things that are going on. And then, you know, because we're, uh, because we are who we are, we tend to grow tired of things and then, you know, put it behind us. And then another wave of something comes along and we get all freaked out about different things and, and stuff like that. And, and what happens is we can become so concerned with paying attention to, to current events and, and trying to predict sort of the when and the what, especially as followers of Christ, uh, of, of what they're pointing to and, and, and uh, of his return, that we fail to let the certainty of his return help us live the when and the what of right now and, and follow him in obedience in our lives currently. Every follower of Christ must be alert until Christ returns. This is the call. This is the command. That's the whole point of this, of this passage here. And we do that by eagerly participating in the gospel mission, by willingly suffering for the sake of Christ, and, and confidently trusting in his ultimate uh, victory. And so we're going to dig in here, okay? We're going we're gonna to have to move somewhat quickly. So uh, if you get frustrated because I haven't covered something, I love you but you're going to need to get over it, okay? Um, and there's things that you can study, and we can study together and keep growing. Verse 1, chapter 13. As he was going out of the temple, this is Jesus, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Now, in verse 1, Mark notes that Jesus is going out of the temple. He's not just describing a transition of location. He's not just, you know, transitioning from one scene to another. This is a symbolic act here uh, that that's, is concluding the, whole, the last two chapters. Remember, Jesus has come and he's condemned the temple as a den of thieves, and he's shown his authority over the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders, and he's condemned them for their hypocrisy. And now he's going out of the temple never to return. Derek talked about this a little bit last week. It's a definitive separation between the Lord of the temple and his temple. And the next time Mark mentions the temple, the temple is in chapter 15 when Jesus dies on the cross. And what happens? The temple curtain is torn in two. 
And so Jesus, as he's going out of the temple, on, on, uh, uh, one of his disciples starts raving about the grandeur of the temple court and everything in it. Look at these massive stones. Archaeologists have, have, have uh, discovered stones from the temple complex. Okay, this is crazy. Stones that are 45 feet long, 11 and a half feet high, and 12 feet thick. So this stage is 12 feet deep. It's 20 feet wide. So stand this thing up on its end here, and that's how tall those stones are. Double it and then some. That's how long it is. And this is how deep it is. I'm standing in the middle of the stone right here. Okay? Each stone weighs over a million pounds. Look at these massive stones. Herod the Great had rebuilt the temple uh, to be over twice the size of the temple that Solomon had built. And the Temple Mount was this mile in, in circumference, almost a mile in circumference. It took up a sixth of the entire city of Jerusalem. It was an incredible display of beauty and grandeur. And Jesus tells the disciple that not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Now the stones that I just mentioned that archaeologists have discovered, those are from the Temple Mount, not the temple itself. They've never found a stone from the temple. There's no evidence of it. Jesus isn't impressed with the buildings. We probably get that by now, right? Jesus isn't impressed by a lot of things. He's condemning these buildings as worthless because the religious leaders have corrupted them and with their hypocrisy and their impure worship. The temple was like a, a fruitless fig tree. It needed to be cut down. One commentary put it this way. I love this. Uh, I think this is really helpful. The disciples drop their jaws over building blocks, but Jesus dismisses them as stumbling blocks. Now, that's about as clear as we're going to get in this chapter right there, in those two verses. The rest of this chapter is not easy to interpret as those two verses are. There are faithful, Bible-believing scholars and teachers who disagree on what Christ has in view here as he teaches the disciples. Some say he's only talking about uh, the, um, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem that's coming. Some say he's only talking about his return at the end of the age. Uh, and others say he's talking about both in, in different views here. Uh, and, and I would probably, I would fall into this last category, and, and we'll, I'll make a case for that here, hopefully. Um, because it seems as though Christ points here to the coming destruction of the city and the temple and then uses that as a typology or, or a foreshadowing of the final judgment to come. And yet, even among those who hold on to this view, there are disagreements as to which verses are talking about what event. And so it's a good reminder to all of us that when it comes to understanding everything we need to know in order to be saved, the Bible is very clear. And yet, there are still passages that contain elements of mystery that drive us importantly and necessarily to deeper dependence upon the Holy Spirit as we seek to understand them and faithfully obey them. They increase our faith. And we find this to be true, especially with passages that speak about eschatology, the study of the, of the final things. And Mark 13 is no exception. But one thing is abundantly clear in this chapter, and that's the exhortation that Jesus gives to his disciples to watch, to be alert, 
to stay ready and to keep active in, in gospel things until the end. And so as we work our way through the rest of this chapter, I want you to see how many times that you can find this charge from Jesus to his disciples. I counted at least seven, okay? Verse three. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus told them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place. But it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. So now they're sitting on the Mount of Olives. This is a place that we've seen Jesus since chapter 11 when he comes in, looks at the temple, and walks out. He's been going back and forth from the Mount of Olives or in, um, into Bethany. Mount of Olives is just east of Jerusalem. It, it's, it stands 200 feet over the Temple Mount, so they can see the temple in all its glory, all of its beauty, gold, and shimmery, and all of that. And they're looking down at the temple, and Peter, James, John, and Andrew, the first four disciples that Jesus calls to follow him, back at the beginning of Mark, they come and they say, hey, tell us the when and the what. We want to know, when is this going to happen and, and, and what will be the signs that will lead up to it? Their question seems to have both the destruction of the temple uh, that Jesus just referred to in the, in the first two verses in view and the end of, eight, of the age in view. The phrase, these things, in verse 4, is, um, is, and used elsewhere in this chapter, it's always going to point back to what Jesus said about the temple and the destruction of it in verses 1 and 2. And then the Greek word at the end of verse 4 translated as accomplished or, or fulfilled, maybe is what it says in your translation. Um, that tends to be a term associated with the end times. It was a common understanding among the Jews in Jesus' day that the destruction of Jerusalem would signal the arrival of the Messianic kingdom. So Jesus ignores the when for now and, and addresses the what first, and he starts by warning them about the unreliability of signs. In verse 5, Jesus tells them to watch out, beware, be on your guard. Why? Many will come claiming to be God, and in doing so, they will deceive many. They'll say, I am he, literally, I am, taking the name of God. They'll use God's name to claim Messiahship, and in doing so, they'll lead many astray. In the years leading up to the Jewish revolt in 66 AD, and then finally resulting in, in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD by uh, Titus, the Roman general, several different men rose up and made this claim. Acts tells about some of these. Acts chapter 5 mentions two men named Theodos and Judas the Galilean who attracted followers for a short while, and then they were killed by their... Uh, they were killed, and then their followers were dispersed. And even after Jerusalem fell, uh, false messiahs continued to pop up. The apostle John wrote his letters, most likely at the end of the first century, toward the end of the first century. And in 1 John 2, 18, he says that the Antichrist is coming, and he also says, indeed, many Antichrists have come. And even now in our own lifetime, we've seen false messiahs. David Koresh, the Branch Davidians. Just one example. 
People like these came and went leading up to the destruction of the temple, and they'll continue to come and go until Christ returns. This is, this is what we can expect. And that means that Jesus' call to watch out that no one deceives you isn't just for his first century disciples. It's for his disciples across all of history and all over the world. And so here's the question. Are you on guard against false teachers? Derek talked about this last week. Imposters claiming to speak with the authority of God. Their, their deceptions, especially here in America, tend to be more subtle. Not so much of, I am God, I am he. But I, I'm speaking with the authority of Jesus, right? And they might take his word and, and use it, but they twist it. Their deceptions are more subtle than an out, outright claim to divinity, but that's what it makes it easier for us to, to be deceived and to buy into their claims, but we always, always, always must compare their claims with the claims of Scripture to make sure that they match. You should be doing that with what I'm saying. Anyone claiming to speak on behalf of Christ must speak Christ's words in Scripture and draw people not to themselves, but to Jesus alone. Through the gospel alone. And if they're doing anything other than that, Watch out. Don't be deceived. Jesus goes on to talk about wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines. These are all things that God has used throughout the Old Testament as judgments against the nations and against Israel. They're signs of God's judgment, but they're not necessarily signs of the end. Jesus says in verse 7 that these things must take place, but it is not yet the end. Remember the phrase, these things, right? It refers to the destruction of the temple that Jesus uh, told us about in, in verse 2. And so in saying this, Jesus separates that event from the end of the age. These things must take place, but it's not the end. Just like wars, earthquakes, and famines are signs of judgment, so too will be the destruction of the temple. It'll be a sign of the final judgment to come. Jesus describes these things as, as birth pains. Moms, you know what this is like, right? Contractions starting to increase in frequency and, and, and uh, intensity. It's go time. But it leads to something glorious. Delivery is yet to come. As believers, we can and we should take comfort in Jesus' words in verse 7. Don't be alarmed, he says. These things must take place. These things are not happening outside of the sovereign plan of God. These things must take place in the same way that the Son of Man must be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and, and, the, and the leaders and be mocked and spit on and flogged and crucified. Because when those things are accomplished, guess what? The Son of Man must raise from the dead. He will raise from the dead. In triumphant victory over sin and death. And having done so, he will provide deliverance from God's wrath and forgiveness for every sinner who is totally dependent on Christ through faith in him. These things must take place because they are a part of God's good and redemptive plan and purposes. Both to warn sinners of impending judgment and then to direct them toward Christ for deliverance. So don't be alarmed. These things are normal. But they are not the end. 
Jesus goes on to talk about something else that the disciples can expect. Persecution and suffering. So far the list is not super great. Verse 9. But you, be on your guard. They will hand you over to the local courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you at that time. For it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will, will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, at this point, I imagine that the disciples are starting to regret asking Jesus the why or the what and the where and the when, right? If I were them, I would rather just sit there and stare at the temple. The picture he paints in verses 9 through 13 is not a terribly exciting one to think about, especially when he says these things must take place, right? But it shouldn't be an unfamiliar one if they've been paying attention as they followed Jesus over these past three years. Listen to the language here. They will hand you over. You will be flogged when they arrest you and hand you over. Arrest, betrayal, death. What does that sound like? Sounds an awful lot like the three predictions that Jesus gave of his own crucifixion in chapters 8 through 10, right? Sounds an awful lot like the call to discipleship he gave at the end of chapter 8. Mark 8, 34 and 35. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. If Jesus is going to suffer persecution and death at the hands of the Jews and the Gentiles, guess what? So will his disciples. Read John 15. If they hated me, they hate, they'll hate you. But if they follow me, if they listen to me, they'll listen to you. He never gives this hard saying without encouraging, without bringing comfort behind it. Because all of this is for the same purpose. So that the gospel will be preached to all nations. Persecution for the sake of Christ paves the way for proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Persecution for the sake of Christ paves the way for the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. And Jesus' disciples would experience this. The book of Acts tells us all about the spreading of, of the first century church through the persecution of the early Christians. And guess what? As they went out, what did they do? They preached the gospel. And the Lord kept bringing more and more and more to himself through that. And so the church grew both in spite of and because of this persecution. Jesus' disciples proclaimed the gospel in Jewish courts and in synagogues and before Gentile governors and kings. They did it, to em they did it empowered by the Holy Spirit whom Jesus had promised to send to them. This is the same thing that happened with the, the John the Baptist. Soon as in, in, in chapter one, very first chapter, John gets arrested. Jesus starts proclaiming the gospel. 
This is the pattern for us. As followers of Jesus in the 21st century, we are not exempt from this promise of persecution and suffering for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Christians are already experiencing this in in varying degrees all over the world. Now, we might actually consider ourselves fortunate that we aren't, but sometimes, dare I say, we might be unfortunate that we aren't because it lulls us to sleep. We may or may not be handed over to the local courts. We may or may not stand before governors and kings. We may be hated and betrayed by our own family members, as Jesus points out in verse 12. But even as we can be assured of suffering for the sake of Christ, we can also be assured of receiving the moment-by-moment grace that we need to endure each trial as they come and the boldness to proclaim the gospel in the midst of it. That's why we suffer. That's why we go through those things, to open our mouths and to tell people the reason. And we, we can be confident that because we've been given the Holy Spirit that we will endure to the end and be saved. Light and momentary trials, Paul calls them. Peter says, after a little while. Jesus goes on in verse 14. This is where it gets really weird. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or get in uh, in, or go in to get anything out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to the pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray it won't happen in winter. For those days, those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Then if anyone tells you, see, here is the Messiah, see there, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I have told you everything in advance. In verse 7, Jesus says, when you hear, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, right? Now he says, when you see. And what will they see? The abomination of desolation. Sounds like a great wrestler name. It's a phrase taken from the book of Daniel in chapters 9 and 11 and 12 that pointed to the the desecration of the temple in Jerusalem. Now the book of Daniel contains quite a bit of apocalyptic and prophetic uh, writing about things to come as well as immediate things and Daniel's vision of the abomination of desolation was originally fulfilled in 167 B.C. when Antiochus IV Epiphanes built an altar to Zeus, a Greek god, a false god, an idol, inside the temple in Jerusalem, and he sacrificed a pig on it. Pigs are unclean. But Jesus seems to be pointing to a future event that hasn't happened yet. Mark inserts a note to his readers in verse 14. As he quotes Jesus talking about the abomination of desolation, he says, let the reader understand. And readers have been trying to understand ever since. 
with no definitive conclusion as to what Jesus is describing in verse 14. Now, it's possible that he's alluding to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, but his words sound more like Paul's description in 2 Thessalonians 2 of the man of lawlessness that will come and desecrate the temple by standing in it and proclaiming to be God. And so while Jesus may be hinting at the coming destruction of the temple, He's more likely pointing ahead to the future appearance of the Antichrist and the great tribulation yet to come in the end times. Notice in verse 19 and 20, Jesus has gone from speaking in terms of these things, related back to verse 2 and the destruction of Jerusalem, to speaking in terms of those days. That phrase has connotations of end times to it. There will be a great tribulation like nothing mankind has ever experienced. The destruction of Jerusalem will be a foretaste, but it won't be anything compared to the distress and devastation yet to come before Christ returns. But in verse 20, we're reminded that God remembers mercy in judgment. He will cut those days of tribulation short for the sake of the elect. Who are the elect? They are all the people that God has chosen for salvation through no merit of their own, but solely and only by His grace. During those days, more false messiahs and false prophets will arise, and they'll perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Now, Jesus isn't emphasizing the the nature of the elect here in verse 22. He's emphasizing the nature of the false messiahs and the false prophets who will stop at nothing to deceive as many people as they possibly can, even attempting to deceive those whom God has chosen to save. But we need to understand this. Because God saves. Because our salvation does not depend on our own efforts, but instead on grace and power that only come from God, we can be confident that he will keep his elect from being deceived when that day comes. They will endure to the end and be saved, like Jesus has said because they rest in the firm grasp of God's mighty hand and no one can snatch them out of it. We're promised that in John's gospel. Jesus gives another exhortation in verse 23. You must watch. If you're keeping track, this is the third time he's charged them with that command. They have no reason to fear the unknown because he's told them everything in advance. Don't worry, guys. It's going to get crazy, but I'm in control. Instead, they must remain faithful and watchful and be ready when those things he's told them about come to pass because when the end comes, it will be unmistakable. Look at verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened And the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Jesus' description here of his return is comprised almost entirely of imagery from the Old Testament. In these few verses, he's drawing from Isaiah 
and Ezekiel and Joel as he describes the sun and the moon and the stars. And he's, he's drawing from Daniel and Zechariah as he describes the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory together as people. This happens after the Great Tribulation. And it's an event that affects the entire cosmos. This is no longer located just in Jerusalem. Sounds terrifying. A lot of darkness. But for every believer, we can read these verses with sure and steady hope because after great darkness comes what? Great light and deliverance. This cataclysmic event won't send us running for our lives because in his great power and glory, the Son of Man who has already preserved our lives will send out his angels to every corner of the earth, to all four winds, every direction. Nobody will be left out. Everyone whom God has called to himself will be brought in. And we will be gathered to our Savior. And we will reign with him in victory. We don't need to fear the darkness. Because it has been overcome by the great light. In the Old Testament, clouds often symbolize the presence of God. And after the tabernacle was built... At the end of Deuteronomy, or uh, Exodus, excuse me, a cloud covered the, the tent of meeting once the tabernacle was built, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, it says, and, and once the, so that nobody, not even Moses, could go in. God's presence and power dwelt there. Once the temple was built, that became the place where God's glory and presence dwelt. The fact that Christ will come in the clouds with power and glory means that God's glory and presence have left the temple and now they are clearly seen in his son. People will no longer be gathered to a city. They will be gathered to a savior. Verse 28. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branches become, as its branch becomes tender and it sprouts, it sprouts leaves, you know that the summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not, certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus gives his disciples an illustration here. We're familiar with this. We have deciduous trees here, right? The fig tree was one of those in Palestine that lost its leaves in the winter and then grew them back in the spring. We get this. The leaves are turning colors right now. What's that mean? Fall's here. Winter's coming. <laughs> Snow. Right? I probably don't need to remind you that last year at Halloween we had snow and it was like 70 below or something. We get it. The trees point to something. They're a sign of the changing times, right? Jesus says in the same way when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near. He's at the door. What are these things? There's that phrase again. He's talking about the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and the events leading up to it. It's the same terminology that's been used in the rest of the chapter when Jesus talks about the destruction of these great buildings in verse 2. And the disciples ask when these things will happen in verse 4. And Jesus says these are the beginnings of birth pains in verse 8. He's using the same phrase again here in verse 30. 
There are different interpretations as to what this, this verse actually means, but if the phrase, these things, is consistent with the rest of the chapter, then it seems most logical that he's telling his disciples that their generation will not pass away until they witness the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. But again, he's not saying this to make them afraid, but to encourage them with hope, and he doesn't, it doesn't get more hopeful than verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus' words are more durable than creation itself. Can we just pause and reflect on that for a second? I mean, the leaves don't even stay on the trees. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus' words are more steadfast than anything you can see in creation. That's really good news. They're eternal words. They're unchanging words. They're sure and steadfast words. This means that what he says will happen, guess what? It will happen. From his crucifixion and resurrection to the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple to his triumphant return and the renewal of all things on the last day. From beginning to end, what the Lord says will be accomplished. Church, this is good news. This is hopeful news. This should fill our hearts with great hope because this means that the gospel really is true. It means that we really have been saved by grace through faith in Christ because he really did die in our place and bore our punishment on the cross and he really did rise from the grave three days later so that we could live forever with him. And it means there really is a day coming when all this striving and all this suffering and all this longing that we have, that every time we look outside and and we just say, this can't be it. Because it's not. It comes to an end at the appearing of our blessed hope, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When he appears in power and glory and he comes to dwell with us forever in a new heaven and a new earth. But Jesus has something else to say about that final day. Look at verse 32. Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Watch. Be alert. For you don't know when the time is coming. It's like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore... Be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. All four watches of the night. Otherwise, when he comes, suddenly he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. Nobody knows when the day is coming except the Father. But Jesus is God's son, right? He's fully God. So how can he not know when the day is coming? Well, he's also fully man. And he's standing there in the flesh telling the disciples these things. Remember, he grew up. He was born as a baby. He grew in wisdom and stature, it says. He got hungry and thirsty, experienced human things. 
So while he was on the earth, he willingly limited certain aspects of his divinity. He didn't lose any of those divine powers by becoming a man. Instead, according to John 5, 19, he limited himself to saying and doing only what the Father gave him to say and do. So Jesus is perfectly content here with saying only the Father knows. But it's precisely because he's resting in the Father's knowledge of that day and hour. And in doing so, he's, he's setting the example for his disciples to follow. We don't need to know when that day or hour will come, only that it will come. We can be satisfied in that answer. And that its timing is in the Father's hands and so are we. But it's precisely because we don't know the day or hour that's coming, that we need to be alert. Jesus uses that phrase four times in these last six verses. In the Greek, it means keep your eyes open. Stay awake. We're going to hear this in the garden. You can't keep watch for one hour. As disciples, we're like the doorkeeper who is commanded to be alert, and this command is for all of Jesus' disciples. From the 12 to Mark's Roman Gentile readers to you and me. What I say to you, I say to everyone. Be alert. The point of this chapter is not to narrow down the when and the what of Christ's return. It is to give us certain hope that it will happen and to narrow down what we are to do until it does. It's not so much information about the future as it is exhortation for the present. Because of what's coming soon, we are to focus on being obedient now. We need to live in a state of readiness. Be alert. Watch out. So what does that look like? It looks like being determined to share the gospel whenever the opportunity arises. It looks like being willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel if and when that opportunity arises. It looks like being unswayed by the political and social turmoil in our country because you and I are confident that Christ is firmly seated on the throne and he has the ultimate victory. Does that describe you? Here's some diagnostic questions. Are you staying alert? Are you checking out? Are you so caught up in trying to figure out the signs of the times that you miss the signs of longing and desperation and brokenness in the people around you and you neglect to share the hope, the only hope that they have and can find in Christ alone? Are you determined to tell them about Christ's first coming before you start warning them about his second? Does the possibility of losing your religious liberty put fear into your heart to the point that it causes you to lose sight of the freedom that you have in Christ? Are you seeking more comfort? Do you find yourself looking more to the Constitution for comfort than the Holy Spirit? And security? Are you so full of anxiety over the outcome of the election or whether or not a certain judge gets put into place that you've forgotten that Christ governs the governments? Listen, I need to answer those questions too because I feel those things in my own heart. But here's what we need to know. For all of those things, there is rich 
and abundant and sufficient grace that Christ himself freely gives to us. Grace to forgive us for sleeping on the job. And grace to give us renewed strength to keep watch. Grace that enables us to look forward to Christ's return with, the sh- with sure hope because we can look backward on Christ's death and resurrection with absolute certainty. Grace that gives us everything we need for life and godliness now, as Peter puts it. You can quote me on this, but I doubt it's worth anything. Chances are, we will probably go to be with Christ before he comes to be with us. But, it's possible that he could return in our lifetime. Either way, he's coming. Either way, what we've been called to as his disciples remains the same. Whether we live out our lives here and and find our death at the end, or we live out our lives here and find Christ's return at the end. Either way, it's the same thing for us as disciples. We must spend our lives in watchful anticipation of the final glorious redemption to come while we also actively participate in the redemption that's taking place right now in the present through the spreading of the gospel. We cannot do this if we remain silent about the gospel or if we refuse to suffer or if we doubt Christ's ultimate victory. We must live in obedience, empowered by grace, compelled by love for God and for people and confident in the everlasting words of Christ. So, church, be alert. Watch out. Wake up. Seriously, wake up. I can see some of your eyes are closed. You're going to have to go back and listen to this. Just kidding. You don't know when he's coming. That's okay. You don't need to. Because you can be certain that he is. Praise God for that. And when he does... He will come in full power and glory and the whole world will know who Jesus is. What a day that will be, amen? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that it brings to us. We thank you that your word is so honest with us. We don't have to deny the realities of our lives here or the realities to come because we are kept firmly and safely in the mighty hand of Jesus. Lord, I pray if that is not the case for anyone here, that this word and your spirit would work together to stir in their hearts their need for Christ. The judgment is coming. But God has made a way. And that way is Jesus Christ and Christ alone. So, Father, would you help us to be obedient? Would you help us to keep watch, not in our own strength, but in the strength that God so richly provides to us in Jesus Christ through your spirit, your word, and your church? And, Lord, we long for that day. Jesus, come. Come. 
Until then, may we be found faithful, standing ready at the door, proclaiming the gospel to all who would hear it, and following Christ in obedience. We love you, God. We thank you for this hope that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.